Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who always gets out his full kimono display whenever he's depressed. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and looking at my my rich things makes me happy. It's just you've you know how Marie Kondo says that you should touch a touch a thing and determine whether or not it gives you happiness before before you decide whether or not to throw it away. Uh, well, the thing is, I never actually touch my kimonos. I just have them on oh, display. Oh, no, you can't touch them. them. The oils in your skin will eventually yeah. ruin that. Uh, right. The it, it'll ruin them. It, it, so, I mean, it'll take a long time. But. So I never I never have a chance to really determine whether or not they, they bring me happiness, so I can't get rid of them. They're, they're not for, for – yeah. they're, for, they're for having. Although, to be fair – They're certainly not they, for touching. They, they do uh, – you know, I, I don't know. People do wear the kimonos. They, they, the people tend to – it tends to be one of those of things where, like, People wear them, but they don't wear nearly the people I know who have a lot of kimono wear them frequently, but never have enough occasions to warrant the number that they have. If that makes sense, yeah. It's so it's like one of those things. Like, well, yes, you do wear them. You just don't like need this many, do you? It's a it's, it's that's where the rich people thing come in comes in. Right, right, right. When you need to have a a closet dedicated to them. Right. Well, I mean, um, yeah. And because gonna... of the way kimonos are displayed, that closet is, is a roughly the floor plan of yeah. my house. Pat, before we get into the movie this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon. Yes, let's Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you can help keep us going and get access to some bonus content. We do a non-Criterion film. Our supporters get to vote on what we're going to watch from a list usually that I put together, but sometimes uh, users submitted. Uh, supporters Never get a to, list uh, I put together, put together it's themselves. worth noting. I have... I think I've let you put one together before. I mean, to be uh, fair, I, I have not asked, nor, I, nor do I have any desire to do right. this thankless chop. <laughs> Let's be very Occasionally, clear. I do run them by you just to make sure there's not a movie on the list that you would absolutely quit if we ever yeah, watched. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, your main and then sometimes that I, I will... still put that movie on yes, the list. Yes, because you do. <laughs> so, it's worth noting, do yeah. in fact hate. <laughs> Some, listen, it's good-natured hatred. Uh, the American way. Um, right. Just, it's just the Midwest. As God intended. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, uh, so we have a lot of fun. We've uh, we've watched a good variety of movies, some very, very bad, like Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which Pat almost quit the podcast over. I did. Uh, and, and it's also the worst movie I've ever seen. Uh, and some movies that... Uh, are a lot better, and actually one that ended up in the Criterion Collection after we watched it. Yeah, but that it, uh, one failsy. wasn't actually that much better than the ones we're complaining about. That one was more of a fluke. That's, of, that's actually that very, does feel like yeah, they just put it in, is pretty middle of the road. Yeah, it's I don't very, know. It's odd, I think it's, it's more in the just Criterion like, Collection. Actually, I actually I think it's got a. It, it's purely because of its association with Doctor Strange Love and the fact that they're like, oh, oh you know what? Yes. This one's real easy to get the rights to. Let's do it, <laughs> right, boys. Right, right. Let's also do that. Uh, yeah, yeah, but. But yeah, we have fun. We watch uh, a good variety of film. And like I said, our supporters get to vote on what we're going to watch. And importantly, on our end, their support helps us pay our server bills and keep this podcast going. Uh, and as much as this is a labor of love, because Pat and I love talking about movies and love talking with each other, this 
podcast will continue to exist until we're physically unable to do it or mentally. Uh, already, that has already that has already helpful. come to pass. I I regret to inform you, I am no <laughs> right. longer mentally sound to do this podcast. I do it that because I I'm uh, bound by contractual law at this point. That's true. That's true. I did make you sign in blood, uh, but um, yeah, it's certainly helpful that people uh, people support us on Patreon and, and help pay our bills, and it helps uh, help just and justify it to ourselves. One dollar gets you access to all those bonus episodes. There's uh, 71 of them over there. Uh, a little above that, though, for folks who want to help keep us going a little bit stronger, and we are grateful and appreciated to them. At five dollars, uh, you can hear us. Thank you on air. So let's do that. Thank you so much to our $5 supporters, Andrew Jarrett, Chris Otto, Eric Coronado, and Stephen Goldmeyer. Yes, thank Above you that, so much. Above that, we do something pretty dang special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard. Uh, write a little personalized thank you note and mail that off once a month. We like to thank those $10 and above supporters on air, so thank you so much to Adam Speakerman, Nina Bojnak, Jason Westhaver, Tracy McGrath, and Patrick Yako. Yes, thank you. If you want to see those postcards without uh, committing to that $10 mark, you can head over to redbubble.com, search for Lost in Criterion there. You can check out past postcards, buy them as postcards, as greeting cards, as stickers, a couple other things, if you so desire. Thank you so much to everyone who has purchased anything off that Redbubble. Thank you so much to everyone who supported us on Patreon over the years and who continues to. And thank you for listening. Yes, thank you, everybody. This week, we are talking about the Makioka Sisters from 1983, directed by Kon Ichikawa. Ichikawa is someone we've seen some really great films from. I mean, the some, are my, stuff some of my some of my favorites, like no, sh- straight some. up. Like I, yeah, these movies are uh, amazing. Frankly, Fires on the Plane and Burmese Harp, which we watched back to back a few years ago, uh. Just, yeah, absolutely will last with me forever. Beautiful films. Some of my favorite things we've ever watched for anything in the Criterion Collection at all. Uh, his uh, Olympics film, Tokyo Olympiad, which we watched many, A many years ago. A billion years ago, uh, but still, I yeah. mean, it, it, it has staying power. Yeah. It has stuck with me. Right. It was just it was such... so insanely artistic for like... <laughs> Like yes, just a a, 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 right. a a study in how to not give the people what they asked for <laughs> right, at, right. At, at the studio. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, a sports film that is artistically essentially absurdism. Yeah, I most, love it. I love it so so doing. much. Yeah, it makes me so Absolutely happy. Beautiful. Uh, so that those three films, um. Burmese Harp and Fires on the Plain are late 50s. Uh-huh. Uh, Tokyo Olympiad is 1965. Yes. What and marks, I don't think it was his first, but it marks a transition of Ichikawa into uh, documentary and animation as well. Um, we'll never watch any of his animation for the... Uh, for the Criterion Collection, right. but it might be something interesting to pursue for a bonus episode at some point. So we get to 1983, and he hadn't done live-action film for a while, uh-huh. at least not consistently. Uh, but he does have a history, not that we've seen them, though I think Burmese Harp was. 
he does have a history of adapting best-selling novels. Uh-huh. This is a, th- a thing he'd done throughout his career. Uh, but in 1965, when he moved more into documentary, his wife, uh, who had been his co-writer, not Owada, uh, retired from screenwriting. Uh, and most of his most famous work, everything we've seen from him, um, well, everything is the Burmese harp and and fire on the plane, of course, but those were co-written by Nadawada. Uh, so she had retired, mm-hmm. and then during pre-production for the Makioka sisters, she passed away. Oh, so this is uh, he doesn't have that base that had been the backbone of so much of his narrative work in the fifties and sixties. Uh, on top of that, uh, Toho, who produced this film, didn't really respect <laughs> Ichikawa as much as, say, uh, anyone respected Kurosawa in right. the 80s. Um, so they were pretty tight-fisted. The, uh, the essay accompanying this release from Criterion by uh, Adi Bach says, quote, in short, Ichikawa had to make a gone had to make the gone with the wind of Japan on what American directors would call a TV movie budget. Right. Uh, so so yeah. Um to balance things out, Matsuko Tenazaki, the uh widow of Jun- Junichiro Tanizaki, uh, who wrote the book, um, did act as script uh editor. So he had he had someone familiar with the with the source material more intimately right. than he was um working with him though he had long respected the work um i mean it's it's a pretty another famous essay, uh, book yeah so it is an yeah it, it is well book series a sorry famous book, it's right. a book series yes. of books but you know yeah well it was originally it was originally serialized um uh, another essay on the Criterion website that isn't actually, I don't think it's included in the release currently, uh, but by uh, Michael Shragro, um, says that Ichikawa had, it had been a long-held dream of his to adopt the Makioka sisters. Uh, so he's got some eggs in this basket, and obviously he just has the the history of adapting bestsellers uh, that's been well-received in the past. So uh, the book, interesting, some side notes on the book. You said it was, it was very well-received in Japan. I mean, it's, I, um, I, it's famous yeah. and it is, it is well-received in, uh, post-war. It's not well-received necessarily yeah. at the time. Right. So it's, it's set in 1936. Uh, it's, serialized and released from 1943 to 1948. Uh, there is a break in the middle of that where uh, it wasn't allowed to be published for a little bit. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, one thing I ran across said that in 1943, serialization was shut down uh, because the movie wasn't political, or the book oh, wasn't okay. political. Oh, okay, so that's a thing. Uh, <laughs> you, you've, you've touched on a topic that we're going to have to talk a little bit longer about because yeah. it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. I have some quotes for you. I As, okay. as, as with these kinds of things, yeah. um, we 
you these kinds of movies tend to send me on a on a, an actual like academic journal hunt, okay? Uh, right, because this right. is a thing I'm very I'm not super interested in the war, but I am interested in like sort of dissidents during the war and stuff like that. So like, yeah. generally speaking, it's understood that he he's not like he he's definitely coming at uh, Tanizaki's definitely coming at the sort of dissidents movement in a from a different direction. Like he's not he's it's mostly an aesthetics sort of thing. Like it's almost mm-hmm. like he's too traditional to be fascist, if that makes sense. Okay. I don't know how to describe this. Like, I, it, it's not necessarily we don't. I don't know enough about him as a person to like make strong claims. But like the articles I've read about, like I read two or three articles about it, uh, about this movie, this book, and not the movie, but the book, um, that like seem to imply that he. How do I explain this? Like, he laments what warrior sort of like obsession has done to his my beautiful my beautiful homeland. If that makes sense. Right. Which I'm trying to think of a corollary in like Germany or America or or the UK or something. Like to be so like it's like I guess it's the like sort of the never trumpers or something to that effect. Yeah. It's not really. That's like I'm I'm in really grasping for like <laughs> if it's they like, had an artistic arm right, to Right, right. It's sure. like my yeah. my <laughs> beautiful place that produced all these beautiful works and and was so majestic in its sort of um self-awareness of its own culture is now yeah. been hijacked by losers and weirdos basically is yeah. is is the right. argument that I that I would that you would see as sort of it. so it's 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 anti-military but it's not anti-military in the like what we're doing here is wrong it's or like or is fascism or whatever it's anti-military in the like Man, you really fucked our country up, didn't you? Um, yeah. And and our and our and perverting think, like long held yeah. traditions, right? And so uh, right. there's a couple quotes from the censor board that did attempt to censor the book, did censor the book, uh-huh. um, which is why I describe it as like maybe you know, I, it it's debatable how well it was received at the time. Uh, yeah. Uh, so. The novel's political orientation was not lost on the censors who protested on the basis of the first few chapters that the Miyokioka sisters goes on and on detailing the very thing we are supposed to be on our guard against during this period of wartime emergency, the soft, effeminate, and grossly individualistic lives of women. Uh, and, and the article that I read, oh boy. and that was from the censors. That's a translation of what the censors said, right? It's anti-fascist yeah, great. By, being, by being exclusively about... The very thing that is aesthetically abhorrent to fascism, which is like individualism and like the lives of women, yeah, who who have interesting no place in sort of Japan's military culture other than to be the ones who run the factories while the men are gone fighting. Like it, it's and there's other quotes. I mean, there's he's the guy who wrote the article I I read for this has a bunch. It's um. A uh, 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 guy named Andrew Chambers, who's who's I've read other things by him, but uh, it it is it, there's there's an ar- a strong argument to be made that to a certain extent, uh, Tanizaki made a active choice to make the most not appropriate for the like not read the room book he could basically. Okay, interesting. Uh, as as a, as a like fuck you to 
the people who were fucking up his beautiful Osaka and Tokyo, like, right? Ruining, ruining the, not the place, but also like the culture, right? That they have that, that had hijacked the culture, and and so like to not just focus on, um, to not just focus on uh, women and their and their in sort of individual lives, but to focus on women their individual lives of like a sort of upper class, like upper middle class, like wealthy. Right. And and focusing on their lives to the exclusion of all references to the military, essentially. It as though the war and the war is only referenced with regard in the movie and in the book, as far as I can tell from from I do want to read the book. Actually, this has got me very interested in reading the book, the books. But um, basically, like the only way that these people are engaged with the war is as the is sort of the way that a lot of Americans engage with like the war in Afghanistan or, or, or Iraq where it's like a thing that comes up. So sometimes you like will cancel an event or you'll throw in like a, a patriotic thing at the beginning, but nothing about the sort of day to day upper middle class lifestyle has changed for them. They are, it is right. as it ever was. It's just now you have to like, Oh, well maybe our memorial ceremony needs to be a little bit lower key. And then you'll all talk about how it's lower key because of the war. Uh, I, I think I think it's very interesting to think about it, and like, apparently there are there's some disagreement from scholars on this topic. Some scholars think he's just writing a very like straightforward nostalgia thing, and it right. certainly is that too. But I think there's something a little bit more uh, sort of seditious in it as well to make it just so yeah. much that because he doesn't continue to write books like that after this book. He writes books about my, like life in Japan but they're not as insanely obsessed with as far as i could tell with this kind of stuff as that one is it's just interesting to me and then it's safe to assume that uh Ichikawa, you know Kony Ichikawa has taken that and run with it a bit as well yeah like and and highlighting things even more sort of intensely at times uh you know kind of amplifying some of those events that in the book are part of a larger story framing but become sort of amplified in his version because it is a synopsis of the book essentially it doesn't the book has significantly more happenings as books tend tend to do um i think it's just very interesting i i don't know i i'm fascinated by the entire thing yeah 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 that's very interesting um obviously i did not have all those details and just that, that it wasn't that it was a book that, that you'd only read as apolitical if your politics are so skewed. Already. Well, right. It's, the, it's like we've had, it's we've run into so this with the Nazis, but we don't run into this with the, yeah. um, with, with Japan very with much because we don't, we don't much. get the yeah. same sort of view f- pr- point on it. Uh, oftentimes, but yeah, yeah this idea of like, Oh, you're a, this is against us, isn't it? Like it's like, well, yeah, it yeah. it you only think that because you're insane. Like basically, like if your politics right. were not as insane as they are, you would never suspect that this is like a work meant to like criticize you. It's just yeah. very funny. I don't know. I've, um, I'm fascinated by that idea. Yeah, and it's interesting, of course, in various ways. A lot of our. Uh, post-war and wartime art that we've engaged with in Japan, um, film, uh, 
is from people who have a not necessarily nostalgia for a way things were but a patriotism for the way things could be right uh that they do view as uh being manipulated and taken away by something be it the the militarization right, or fascism right. or or you know whatever it might be that they're particular you know the end result is all the same right um yeah so <laughs> interesting um it is a it is a book that is nostalgia for a period of osaka life uh that no longer exists certainly by the time this movie is being made um ichikawa did have his own connection to osaka he he attended school in osaka for a time um and uh the essay suggests Audibox essay suggests that he uh in being educated in osaka had an osaka accent was in love with Osaka enough to want to make this story well, about I mean, there's a, Osaka it's, merchants. It's a really but... fa- okay. So the whole thing. Okay, we're we're gonna Adam. How do you feel about going down a deep, deep rabbit hole about sort of the nature? If you of, want like, to take me on this deep, deep well, rabbit hole, I, that we is have to fine. decide how long we want to be on this rabbit hole. But basically, what I'm gonna get, what I wanted to get into, is like the roles of these of essentially the two primary. You know, ignoring Kyoto for a little bit because. It is sort of a traditional seat of power, but hasn't been a seat of power in a really long time. Uh, long uh-huh. enough to be, it's relevant in history, but it's not necessarily relevant in like the, during like the Edo era and then the Meiji Restoration, like as much as you okay. one would imagine. Okay, um, so um, let's like go on a trip. So like, what is each city for? What is Osaka and Tokyo for? Right. So Tokyo is the seat of of sort of samurai governance, right? Uh, for throughout the entire like Tokugawa era, okay, which is about two hundred years, yeah. uh, a little bit more than two hundred years, uh, and then into Meiji, and then and there's a direct through line between that and uh, the the Meiji government and the and the and the Taisho era and Showa era, where like essentially, it's important to understand that during the Meiji Restoration, the goal was as far as it, like one would kind of regard it. There's a reason why there was not a lot of bloodshed. I mean. Not a lot of bloodshed is relative, but it's significantly less than, for example, the French Revolution or something like that. And the reason yeah. why is that everybody's got the same goal. The um, the 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 final like Tokugawa shogun uh, shogun shogun had like already begun to dismantle the system before the major restoration, before the Boshin War, and all these other sort of things that like set into motion, but couldn't really make it happen because of political reasons, i.e., daimyo were not willing to like. A restructuring of Japan into a sort of modern power would have required giving up things that they just, much like capitalism will never surrender itself. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it'll destroy itself, but it won't surrender. You know what I mean? Like, it won't. No, you're, you're like, I'm going to give away all my money is always a bullshit thing, right? Uh, the daimyo are the same way, right? Like, they all recognize pretty much, too, that, like, oh, well, we need a modern military, which means it has to be unified conscript army. And unified conscript powers, unified military, right? Well, that would require them mm-hmm. all to just voluntarily sur- surrender their power, right? Uh, like, and essentially become not the thing that they are anymore, right? Um, right. And the, so even if, like, the final Tokugawa Shogun can see that that needs to happen, and they can see that can happen, you can't, you, 
just just you can't make it happen, right? And so the the major restoration and the sort of Boshing War and all that stuff happen because somebody essentially has to force it into existence, right? Um, and so that's a group of of you know daimyo in the south region of Japan, like sort of unifying and 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 taking over. But the goal, the point I'm trying to get to is that nobody disagrees about what has to happen, which is Japan needs to be modernized, right? The the barbarian essentially the barbarians are at the gate. And if and if we don't become a power, if we don't become a colonizer, essentially, though, though the sort of colony idea comes sort of after the re- the restoration, uh, if we don't become a power, we become sort of we what happened to China, what happened to Korea, those things happen to us is the notion, right? So we have to rapidly modernize. But the goal is not to like revolution, right? Does that make sense? Like the goal mm-hmm. is not to like change the the country. The goal is to transition into that while keeping pretty much everything that makes a, makes it Japan, quote-unquote, the same. Okay? So, yeah. That's why, like, you don't see a shift in the seat of power. You don't... Sh- the, the Basically, the same people are in charge after the major restoration as we're in charge before the major restoration. Like, the final... the Like, the final Tokugawa Shogun becomes a... The, for lack of a better term, a, center, a senator. After he goes into like self-imposed exile for like five years, and then comes back as a wealthy like businessman and senator, and all the and all the top tier sh- uh, samurai do that. They lose their inherited titles, but like maintain all the power they had before. They all become businessmen and and all these things, right? Um, right. And, and so like like what happened in Italy, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of revolution. Right. Yeah. And and, and that, that right. is true, but like this one is so explicitly that it's almost like disturbing to look at. Okay. All, all the other ones have all the other revolutions have high-minded ideals and it, it at some core, right? Of like Okay. You know what I mean? Because they have to stir up a sort of a a popular base to like support the revolution, right? Right. This one doesn't need that. Doesn't have that, doesn't need that. It is not necessary to make it happen, right? And so it okay. just, you don't, nobody's, nobody even has an idea of shifting the sort of like places in society, if that makes sense. Because you, you just don't need it, essentially. Um, you know, there, there's the possibility, you know, some farmers make good and, you know, they become important. But, like, it's it's a rarity, right? Uh, there are heroes that are celebrated, uh, you know, among the, like, you know, the revolutionaries that, like, but it's, that are like you know because they the the they do end up creating conscript armies because there are essentially no standing armies at the point where the major restoration starts right where where you I say the major restoration the the the, the war leading up to it there's no standing armies essentially at all so they sort of have to create them they create a bunch of conscripts but like they're they're very importantly that they're conscripts they're people who are dragged into this war um, and a few of them become quote unquote heroes but like generally speaking like everybody who was important before is important after there's only minor shifts in who's in charge. Uh, I, I would say to a more significant extent than something like the Italian Revolution or like the French Revolution, like where at least there wasn't somebody was writing things about how this was going to change everything. Nobody's even writing things about how this is going to change everything. Um, and so where I'm going with this is so Tokyo remains the seat of political power, but it is still largely kind of the uncouth capital. If that makes sense, because bear in mind that, like, in a way of understanding it, it was always the rough warrior people who were in charge. 
Okay. The the high minded aristocrats, the the sort of like the wealthy like aristocrats live in Kyoto, uh, by and large, and Osaka is home of the merchants who have throughout the the Edo era risen to a significant amount of power without having any political stand like f- social standing. Right, they are the lowest tier of the caste system, but they are also mm-hmm. m- most of them more rich than the samurai ever were. Like. You're a wealthy right. a wealthy merchant is significantly more wealthy than like even a daimyo. Um, so they've created this sort of cultural center in Osaka that's sort of much more obsessed with wealth rather than sort of if you want to break it down to very like basic sort of stereotypes, it's more obsessed with cultural replication than sort of like power replication. Like you know Tokyo being obsessed with like the ideas of power, whereas Osaka being obsessed with like, well, we're we're the the sort of cultural elite, uh, and and mind you, they do that. They they come into being by like in many ways, sort of copying what the samurai are doing, and sort of trying to refine it more. But also, the samurai were copying what the aristocrats were doing and trying to like it. it it's right. a, uh, there's a weird through line, a sort of snake shaped through line in in Japanese history. But like, you end up with Osaka as this sort of cultural center that is like also not if that makes sense it's also just like the same stuff that everybody else was doing but they're just rich so they can do it more right but they're also still the lowest cast like the caste system is quote unquote abolished um we see how well that works out as uh, time goes forward but um yeah it's, i don't know it's very weird it's like the whole thing is but but surely surely eventually this uh this merchant class escapes its caste definition. Well, it's already right? has. It had done it a long time ago, yeah. right? But like for example, like there were laws that restricted what they couldn't couldn't could and couldn't do because like they weren't of a caste that would like allow them to do certain things like, you know, for example, have last names. They would have to get uh, like a, you know, they would have to talk the daimyo would have to award them the right to have a last name and things like that. Of course, after the major okay. restoration, that goes away. But like by and large, nothing has really changed in their lives other than the fact that, like, now trade is open, which means, theoretically, it's a chance to make a lot more money. You don't have to, like, do backroom deals anymore with the samurai. The samurai are gone, who you had to do a bunch of backroom deals with before because they weren't legally allowed to participate in commerce. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, a lot of that stuff goes away. But, yeah, things haven't really changed that much. But, like... It's just an interesting thing because, like, something like this sort of looks at the people. It's about a group of people who are longing for a past that didn't exist in many ways. Okay. Like, the Makioka family is, like, talking about how important they were during, like, before the major restoration, right? But they're, like, kind of longing for a past. That, like, Well, yeah, you were the, the biggest fish in the sea, but you also, at the time, were, like, that wasn't necessarily a better time for you, but like you feel like it was, I don't know. It's a very interesting sort of dynamic that I, I forget kind of why we started down the path of talking about the history of these places, <laughs> but it's, it creates a really interesting right. dynamic where like, there's a reason like even to this day, there's a sort of understanding that like Tokyo is the serious business place and Osaka's the fun business place. I see. Like I see. Tokyo people, uh, Osaka people cut, wa- cut loose and go wild. Whereas like, Tokyo people don't is the sort of notion that people have. In light of that, and in light of 
in light of the characters of the novel originally being nostalgic for a thing that maybe is historically inaccurate. Yeah, I mean, they, and and so are the the movie people uh, too. The movie characters are yeah, also like too certainly the bad. characters yeah. are. Um, but in light of that, it's it may be interesting to look at some of the changes Ichikawa did make from the novel. Hmm. Uh, so within the the novel is five hundred thirty pages in its English translation. Right. Uh, it's long. There's a lot to be cut out if you want to make a movie of a reasonable length, and two hours and twenty minutes is a reasonable enough length for yeah. for what we're talking about. Um, so the novel is particularly about the family's decline during the uh, Great Depression. Well, yeah, I mean, it is it is about the it uh, is about the same period that the movie is about, which is like the lead up. To- right, right, but the movie does not overtly deal with the family's financial dire straits that the book deals with i uh yeah that's true. at least according to audibox essay i don't know that that's true uh, the movie makes a lot of references to their not being like it's subtle but like yes. i think the audience can it is, feel it. it is more deeply right right well it's, I, it has to do I with explicitness that. that you get in novels that you can't have in movies yeah. you don't want the characters wandering around shouting about being poor all the time Especially yeah. since they're well, one like thing upper that, middle class, they wouldn't do that anyway. Right. One thing that Box pointed out that happens in the novel that does not happen in the movie and could have happened in the movie uh, is that while Takeo does still end up poor and marrying for something like love, but more more like marrying for freedom, um, Yukioko in our movie ends up married to. A cast-off son of a nobleman. Yes. You know, a second son or whatnot. But still a nobleman. Not the one who's going to inherit the... I. But that's... Uh, uh, she's also engaged in a very prestige, traditional practice but, of, like, the way that these two yeah. par- these two s- social groups interacted. That was a very common practice yeah. throughout, like, pre-major right. restoration even of, like, well, wealthy merchants marrying into, into... As a sort of way of accessing power... The the the, right. the 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 aristocratic or samurai family either one gets access to wealth in exchange for right. them getting access to sort of the sort of tangential sort of like acknowledgement of like um what is the word I'm looking for of um legitimacy right right well in the novel uh spoilers for the novel uh Yokioko uh marries a uh the son of a nobleman's mistress. Yes, yeah, see, I did read that that, that uh, is the the um yeah. Well, okay, but like bearing in mind that like inheritance laws being weird and everything like that, that is still a that is a that person has <laughs> Yes, it could still be. That person does yes. have a a like w- actually those laws got worse after the major restoration than they were before the major restoration in terms of like how much sort of access to the sort of reins that that person might have. Interesting. Yeah. Um, another thing Bach brings up is that Saruko uh, ends up um, having to uh, find a charity in order to clothe her children. Uh, oh, in the in, in the book, in the end of the novel. Well, I mean, and that's the thing, right? Is that like I think in that situation you get sort of like what the the author of the book versus what the um, 
what the um you know our director here with uh right Charles right. is like looking for so, it's like they're they're going after different things right like the author of the book is is legitimately sort of engaged with the idea of a wants the drama but b like the idea of like look what you've done to my beautiful children you motherfuckers yes 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 um another change in the movie is that the the family's business is not actually named in the book uh because the the parents are dead. There's no reason to talk about what the business actually was. It's how Bach essentially frames it. But, uh, but yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Bach goes on to talk um, about uh, reasons why that might have been true. Um, and says, quote, uh, Ichikawa reserves actual material hardships for Takeo alone. Or Ta- Taiko. Um Ichikawa reserves actual material hardship for Takeiko. Well, you, you've uh, got, alone. you've lost it. You got worse. Not I got, I did it worse. Taeko. Yeah. Taeko. All, all, all vowels are pronounced. Taeko. Yes. Taeko. Taeko. Um, Ichikawa reserves actual material hardship for Taeko alone, leaving out the privatization, um, the malnutrition, disease, and apprehension woven into Tanizaki's novel set during the Great Depression. Uh, later saying uh, that um, Konichikawa, quote, knew that Japanese audiences of the 1980s flushed with the wealth that came with being banker of to the world and possessing of a higher standard of living than even the United States could no longer bear to look back on wartime poverty. Uh, so, so, so Bach, like the funny Bach thing about it, so why, my Bach problem, is a smart person. But my also, I have a bit of a problem with yeah. Bach. Bach is also wrong. Yeah. The movie is, a, yeah. the book is about 1936 to 1941. Mm-hmm. We are, we are fully moved. Yes, it is the end of the great, we are, Japan, like everybody else, like pretty much everybody else, solves the Great Depression through fascism. Uh, quote yes. unquote, solves by mobilizing huge numbers yes. of people to do war shit. Like, by 1936, you're fully in the, like, the quote-unquote sort of post-depression wartime era Japan in the book. Like, Taiko yeah. is, is impoverished because that system never fa- f- actually fixes it. Fascism doesn't fix anything. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, right. You mobilize a lot of people, but you don't actually, like, pay them money and stuff for, like, what they're going to do. Um yeah. Like I just I don't know. I take some umbrance to the idea that like 1936 is air quotes depression era Japan. It's really mm-hmm. like imperial army era Japan. Does that make sense? Like there's a difference there. Like yeah. those aren't the same thing. Like her husband could go join the war in a moment's notice and would get paid enough to like feed her. Does that make sense? Right. Now, at this point, later yeah. on, no, sorry, no. But like does that you know what I mean? Like those are different eras. Yeah. This is not everybody's out on the street because there's nothing to do era. This is like I'm so I'm being purposely impoverished by the government because I won't participate in the yeah. war effort era. Right. Yeah. So of course whenever whenever I end up quoting the essay verbatim, uh I'm taking sentences out of a broader context. Um I understand that. So uh so this one maybe hits a little weird but i do want to dive in um maybe 1980s japan is outside of your historical purview too so maybe we can't dive in too much to this but 
Uh, I mean, it's actually closer to my historical purview than 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 yeah. than, than this is. But like, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Bach Bach also says that quote the post war humanist Ichikawa, who showed the misery and deep questioning of Japanese soldiers in films like Fires on the Plain and The Bernese Harp, averts his eyes for an audience that feels no guilt. He gives. He doesn't give us a Hollywood. I, I don't know about this. I Ty, really. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm really gonna have to take arguments with with Bach yeah. here. I'm I'm sorry. I think he's like the baby boomers are the dominant force mm-hmm. of the 1980s in Japan. Okay. Yeah. They they are they every single one, a majority of them were born to parents who cared a lot about the war. Mm-hmm. They were probably forced to engage with like the post-war stuff quite a bit. Like anti-war movements, like were really big deals in Japan in the 1980s. Yeah, like, like I don't know. It's sort of I feel like what we're doing here is translating like the attitudes of 1980s America onto the 1980s attitudes of Japan. Yeah, does that make sense? Like, when I don't know, it doesn't. A lot of like what you deal with in the 1980s are sort of fallen, like people who were rebellious in their youth. Who have fallen from sort of fallen from grace, for lack of a better term, are no longer active in like political movements as strongly because they've been coerced into participating in the sort of dominant economic force. But the idea that they don't think about the war, care about the war, is I think a bit of a bit of a stretch. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. We don't need to get too too deep into box motivations or or justifications for saying what she might say. Um, she is, she had lived in Japan in the late sixties, early seventies. She is the, uh, translator for Kurosawa's autobiography. Um, she'd written extensively books on Japanese film directors in general in 78 and particularly book length, uh, studies on, uh, Naruse, uh, and other directors. Well, I wonder to a certain extent if she was living in Japan in the like sixties and early seventies, there's there might be a sort of a bit of a like, oh, well, we're those those the Halcyon days where everybody was rebelling are over. These 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 damn kids don't care. Sort of thing. I wonder. Um Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just interesting. I, I don't know. So her time her time in Japan predates the eighties. It looks like uh but in 85 is when she wrote the Naruso book. So um, I don't know. I don't I don't know how to uh, how to interpret well, I mean, her, I, I, her. It's not really like yeah, her it's experience. Fine. Like I Japan. just sort of I get kind yeah. of like, but I get weird about I, you know. Yeah, I, I don't know about the relevance of like bits of information. Yeah. But. Uh, describing 1980s. Japanese as a people who feel no guilt about the war anymore. Uh, it seems, I don't know. It feels very, um, it feels very glib to me yeah. and not necessarily accurate. Like, I think it would be worth arguing that maybe a fair number of like young people, I'm talking like you're like 20 year olds, 30 year olds in 1980s. Maybe they yeah. might be like, think- well, that was the previous generation. Leave me right. out of this. But like they're not also the dominant generation. The, the baby boomers are. Yeah. And I think 
Like I think Bach may bring it up as a way to sort of justify, given she's writing for the Criterion Collection, right? And within the Criterion Collection, if you've been a completist up to the point of this movie coming out, uh, at most, you are familiar with the three movies we've already mentioned, Tokyo Olympiad, Fires on the Plane, and The Burmese Harp. So by way of explaining so, yeah, I mean, it does do, yeah. why this why this is not Fires on the movie. Plane and Burmese of the Harp, <laughs> maybe. Right, right, right. Uh, no, that, I do understand that for sure. I, I just think, I wonder if, yeah. I also think the answer to that uh, question is because the source material isn't that. Uh, you know, the source material, right. the and war like, happens in the background because the characters are not interested in engaging with the war. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. And like, yeah. and if you're if you're calling Ishikawa, like one one does imagine that that this is he. You said he like you mentioned that he was he liked the source. He had like read the source right. material. Right. And he's aware of it. It really comes to mind the idea that like oh well, it's quite possible that since this academic debate about like what this these books are about is very much a real thing in the eighties too and previous to that. Like it, it's been a work that people read and talk about long enough that like it's not like he wouldn't oh he's never heard this argument before you know what i mean mm-hmm. but it's quite possible that he i i don't know i feel this movie is fairly political as well like the audience is aware of the fact that this there's, there's a fucking war on right and these people are largely oblivious to it or distasteful for it, like and like having to engage with it in any way. And he doesn't ignore the war. He lets us see a soldier, right? He lets our characters either ignore or or leer at. Well, that's what I mean. Is I, train, I think he right? ignores the same the war in the same way that Tanizaki does in yeah. the sense that like, oh, this is background noise. What we're right. engaged with is important. That's background. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh <laughs> Brass tax. Uh Plot-wise, this movie was not something I engaged with. The uh, the intricacies of the relationships of uh, I actually did a lot. I upper really class people uh, is not something I've I, ever really. I really, yeah. Well, but like, here's the thing: is I think that Ichikawa is like fairly dismissive of it in like in a way that I don't think that necessarily Tanizaki was. Yeah, like Tanizaki like liked this shit and thought it was like. The real Japan. Yeah, I get the impression from like, from my my sort of way of engaging with it, based on what we know about him, and also just like how I feel about the movie, is that like, to a certain extent, he thinks that it's an interesting story to talk about. Sort of like how how traditional sort of behaviors come into conflict with the sort of the Japan that has developed during the war is I think a topic he is interested in, but also like these people are silly. Like, and like there's a sort of, he sort of, I feel like he sort of acknowledges that like, this is like, these people are ridiculous, like to exist and be the way they are when in the time period that they are in, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. In a way that maybe the book isn't like, I've never read the book, but like that was the kind of vibe that I was taking away from. It was like, Oh, look at these, what look at these fucking idiots basically um like their problems are real but their problems are all self-generated yeah and there's no way that you could not like acknowledge that 
as an audience member. You know what I mean? Like you're you're there's no way you can ignore the fact that like they routinely do dumb shit that right. like makes their lives yeah. worse. No, they are And like I think that like they are top to bottom ahead. uh victims of their own dedication to uh traditions that have no grounding in history anyway, right? <laughs> so well, yeah, or or have are very like are sort of the manufactured sort of things that yeah. the elites come up with to like justify their existence and and explain them essentially just doing whatever the fuck yeah. they want. Even um even to the point that they are barely allowed to have human connections between the sisters because every time something like that happens, there's a maid watching them or it was going to be in a public train station so we don't want to embarrass ourselves or blah 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 right well right and, and so that's the thing it's like that's where i was kind of getting at like for example first of all i okay so like there's a lot going on in this movie that's i really actually like this movie because a i enjoy like family dramas mm-hmm. on a sort of root level anyway yeah. uh like this but like also like i think this one's really interesting right like you get oh it gives us an opportunity that i suspect times like he doesn't um and this is a suspicion only. I, have, I cannot prove it. But, like, Ichikawa is, like, constantly shows them being absolute fucking assholes right. to all of the people who, like, make their lives possible. Right. Right? All the servants, all the maids, all these people are treated like shit. And, like, Ichikawa didn't just put those things in there on accident. Right. You know what right. I mean? These people being fucking jerks to anybody below them sort of in the social like hierarchy is not an accident and like i think it's worth acknowledging that like he fucking top to bottom probably again i suspect significantly more than the original source material just fills the movie with that yeah and i think that's important i and and like them like kind of like constantly like going on about like you know sort of trivial matters and is is important, right? Like, and then like the movie is full of references to the war, not just to give you time and place, but to help you to constantly remind it. It obliquely references the war all the time to remind you of like what their lives contextually are taking place in. To to, yeah. to sort of heighten that contrast and heighten like heighten the fact cl- of newspaper clippings yeah, and, of how disconnected they are from real conflict, right? Right. And, like, we get some really interesting things are going to happen, right? Uh, Yukiko's husband, future husband, is about to participate in the starting of the Japanese Imperial Airlines. Yeah. That is what he is engaged in. It starts in 1938. It is is not even a civilian airline. It is nominally a civilian airline that handles all the air moving of troops for the Japanese government. Uh Uh-huh. Like, he's involved in the war, whether... Like she likes it or not, like their headquarters is like they they have a they work in in can, what's the word I'm looking for? They work in like um tandem with the with, with the Manchurian like the Manchuko the the fake yeah. Japanese Manchurian state they set up right uh, national airline that is also for that purpose. Like it is explicitly a war time thing that comes into it like is it is one of the first things the allies dissolve yeah upon like surrender it's dissolved like the next day yeah interesting like, oh that shit's done like it, it 
Now, like, would it, the second son of an aristocrat be fine? Absolutely. Like, he's not in any danger. Right. But, like, sh- she's getting involved in the war. Whether there, There's a decent chance she'll end up in Manchuria. Mm-hmm. Because they've got a headquarters. They've got, a, like, a major hub there because that's where the war's happening, right? Prior to, you know, the, you know, the Pacific War, right? And so, like, it's really, like, we we see like that reference that's an uh, oblique reference that's another sort of oblique reference reference to like the wars taking over their lives whether they like it or not but it's going to happen slowly because they've been able to like sort of insulate themselves from it like the you know um Suzuko's like husband is moving to Tokyo where like and he's a banker like he's probably been in he has been enmeshed in the war but is most likely going to get even more enmeshed in the war significantly as things go on right like because like it's early days right it's 1937 or so but the the movie seems to take entire place entirely almost entirely pre-1938 whereas the books extend right into 19 the 1940s early 1940 like the movie is like is the only essentially the first half right because him we know that because I know we know what date we right. we we being me know what date that airline was formed. Yeah. There's only one airline that was formed in Japan during the war because there was only one airline. Yeah, and that that's one. it. Yeah, yeah. Well, interesting. Uh, so I don't know. It's it's just an it's just an interesting. Th- I don't know. My I I don't know. It's I feel like the movie is significantly more political than like it than it is at first blush. Uh-huh. It feels like. It is, but like your audience doesn't necessarily know about 1938, the forming of fucking Japan Imperial Airlines or whatever the fuck they name it, like all Nippon yeah. Japan, like Imperial. Certainly Airlines not an international audience, but they but do, a domestic audience maybe. No, but but even a domestic maybe maybe not because that's kind of like dead history. Yeah. They're dissolved in 1945, like they don't exist. Like maybe they learned it in school, maybe they didn't, probably not. But like they are aware of the overall context right. that like. And like things like the invasion of like uh, you know I forget the name of it I, it's, it's the main Japanese army group during World War Two and I can't fucking remember its name. It starts with a T, mm-hmm. but they've just invaded that. But we see a newspaper clipping yeah. of that. Like, the movie's full of reminders to its audience that the war is happening. Right. It just wants to make you, kind of like be like, oh, look at these silly people who are doing all these kind of silly things in a war and like, you know, they're, and, and also kind of engaged with the idea that they're relatively insulated from the war, right? right? There's a decent chance that none of these husbands are going to get um, drafted. Right. Like they might be, but it's not necessarily that likely. I would say, um, I would say that um, uh, Sachiko's husband is maybe the most likely. He's young. I don't, fully understand what his job is he's an accountant I think they tell us but i have he's an accountant but for like who yeah uh seemingly kind of mainly question. for the family but probably right not. which is why he's got a decent chance of being drafted right. um like on the other hand like the other husband is like zero chance right um what's his name i've, I've forgotten everybody's names um it would be uh yeah juzo like um or sorry that's the name of the actor my bad yeah. I got distracted uh, Tatsuo like he's unlikely to get drafted he's yeah. like a very important person at a bank right 
bank employees didn't get drafted, right? They got to make the money keep right. coming, right? Uh, on the other hand, like, um, you know, uh, Tenosuke is his name. He's just lit written as an accountant. Right. So it's possible that he's an accountant for somebody very important and therefore won't get drafted. Yeah. But the the point, and that's certainly the second son of a nobleman is not going to get drafted unless he's sort of like pressured into joining. Um, but the point I'm trying to get at is that like, you're, you're, this family will remain basically isolated from the war throughout the war, generally speaking. Right. Like, except for um, Taiko, her husband could get drafted like at a moment's right. notice throughout the war. Right. Like, it's he's he has no standing to like prevent it. But you know, it, it's um, it's just an interesting thing to think about because I think it's a thing that um, you know, Chicago wants us to think about and engage with is the idea that these people are like the petty bourgeoisie in the middle of a war like kind of just doing their petty bourgeoisie bullshit right and this is what it and this is what these are the sorts of people these people exist in a war they are essentially insulated and isolated and protected from the thing that their existence creates right like they are fundamentally the reason why Sort of fascism comes into comes into being and all this stuff, but they don't. They're protected from it, insulated from it. They don't have to care about it. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, uh, certainly makes sense. Yeah. Yes, one hundred percent. Because there's just too much frivol. There's too much frivolousness, and too many references to the war to think that like he's like not paying attention to right. it. Of course. Yeah, and he's made active choices of what to show, what to take out, what time frame within the novel to focus on. To uh, focus on, yeah. And what to add, you know, when, when things get added. You know, we get a happier ending for uh, for Yokioko, at least within the context of the film, though as, as you've stated, perhaps not historically moving forward. I um, mean, I, like, again, like, his his chance of dying uh, for Yokioko is... Um, her husband of dying again as the second son of a nobleman. He's going to be one of the first people evacuated from Manchuria when, like, yeah, the, when the uh, Soviets and the and the and Maori take it right. Like, but like, you know, he's still going to be like she's going to be part of the war with her, whether she wants to be or not. Right, right. Um, At least tangentially. Yeah. Another thing he added uh, is uh, Teyanosuke's. Uh, crush on uh, his sister. Yeah, I noticed that because there's no references to that in any t- discussion of the source material at all. Like that's just yeah. seemingly a whole and I don't know invented thing. Presumably, that is to have a male character for male audience members to connect emotionally with more. Maybe I don't know. Uh, Maybe I was also kind of reading it as like. Just sort of adding another fact, fucked up layer. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there is that too. Yeah, clearly. Like to just make these people more fucked up and weird and insular that like yeah, he's married to essentially, for lack of a better term, the wrong sister or whatever right. and like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, maybe. Maybe. Also, I... There are... There's a lot of humor in this movie and people doing very silly things. Uh, but when he comes back from paying off 
Taeko's ex and announces that he got a receipt for the extortion payment. Uh, was one of the funniest oh, yeah, no, I love it. in the movie. I to love me. it. Just in case, yeah. I I really love it. I think it's so funny because like it, though at the same time it's like, well yeah though I guess right but like, I guess if your plan is to like well if he goes back on his word and starts bad mathing around town we can at least sue yeah. him. I guess I don't know. It's very funny. It is a very funny moment. I agree. Yeah. Um. Also, moments of humor. Obviously, everyone, all of Yokoyoko's. Uh, suitors are funny in one way or another just absurd i i love the fish man the fish man is amazing Uh, fish man's great uh is he the one who is 47 and shows up with his school transcripts is that the same guy or is that yeah no he's the same guy he's like so like it's interesting though because like we're really getting into some fascinating stuff here because they're obsessed with their class position Mm -hmm. and replicating that class position means searching through a very specific set of suitors right right like you, they can only he, she can only marry people of a certain level. Well, in this modern era, in that era, right? Like you're getting into the fact that like a lot of those people are actually government functionaries, right? And like the sort of mundanity of this sort of fascist regime, right? Like his job is to manage the fucking fish, right? Yeah, is a really fascinating sort of thing to engage with. Is this like this guy is like what makes the empire tick, right? Is right. like fucked up dudes like this is a funny thing to have to like have the movie sort of engage with. Yeah. Is this like fucking weirdo? Yeah. Well, it's an aspect of oh. Germany too, that we very rarely engage with in film. Oh no. The, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the maintenance of the, uh, wildlife resources, you know, not just farmland, but, uh, you know, there's stories of what Germany well, like, he, he obliquely references the idea that he's fucking trying to do like fucking uh, like um, <laughs> eugenics on the fucking right, fish. Right. He's doing eugenics on the fish, particularly. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. And of course he is because Japan became obsessed with eugenics during the war. Yeah, like in nutso ways. Like real, they, they, they have re- re- some elements of re- have remained right. Like as a part of society. Like there's still vestigial tales of that obsession. Yeah. But he also around like, you know, self-servingly to make an argument for himself and why he should be the one picked. He also has that metaphorical argument of nature versus nurture for the fish that you'd like, uh, you'd like uh freshwater fish if it were raised right in proper conditions. Uh, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it's really interesting. He's a really, actually, I think a super interesting yeah. character. And I suspect is more interesting in Ichikawa's version than he would be in the novel. Yeah. In the novel, I suspect he's meant to just be a dullard who is like, well, this is the sorts of suitors you get to choose from now because you waited too long. Right. Um, whereas here, it's a chance for Ichikawa to sort of engage with like the kinds of weirdos that like rise to power during like fascist regimes. Yeah. yeah. And and the sort of minor, the sort of the minor. Uh, sort of power centers that exist uh, in times like this. Right. Is a is a fucking dude obsessed with fish who brings the death certificate of his of his wife and children right. to uh like that's the that's the shot like that's what's meant to be sh- like him bringing his university degree is funny. Right. Him bringing his death certificate of his wife and child is like meant to actually be appalling. Right. Right. And how he just Even casually mentions that like, it's Whoa. in the envelope, right? <laughs> Right. You've got my school transcripts, my the death certificate. 
Uh, and they're like, what, what do you mean death certificate? <laughs> um, the, the what now? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and and he is, and so they're searching for suit. It's really, I, I, I'm deeply fascinated by this entire thing. You got to understand, okay. like this thing is doing loop-de-loops in my brain in a really weird way because like, again, we're, we're engaged with the idea of like what kind of suitors fit into their conception of their class position, right? Yeah. And the problem is like, this is what you get now, right? Like the the sorts of suitors that are in their mind are like from their sort of classical understanding, right? Is minor noble men, is like other wealthy merchants. But those classes are gone. They're dead pretty much. They barely exist. Like they do exist, but they're they're almost irrelevant in the society that we're actually talking about, right? Yeah. The people who are important and powerful now are function like government functionaries. That- like generals major important soldiers pat are you only making this argument because you married into a japanese merchant family i i do not know if they count as a (laughs) japanese merchant family Uh, i do not think they technically do yeah but no what i'm saying though is that like in in a really serious way they're they're coming to into to grips with a confrontation between their expectations of what they think their family deserves and what actually exists in the world around them right the people they're looking for don't exist anymore. Not largely. I mean, wealthy merchants, of course, still exist, but wealthy merchants are all engaged with the war. Right. That's where you make money now. That's probably part of the reason why they are poor. Or they are like losing money, is that they didn't engage with it properly, right? They certainly textile company owners made a fuck ton of money during the right. war. But these guys fucked up. And and we are sort of engage with them in a really I think a really because inter- they're like her getting to marry the aristocrat is, is, is sort of an odd thing that to, to sort of have at the end of the movie because it is sort of feels like a sort of uh, hey I want to make this a little bit lighthearted right. here at the end because like in reality in that way Tanizaki's is a much more accurate depiction of what's going to happen right because he's engaging with the idea that like mm, that's not what you get anymore okay like you get this is what's here now. Like, this is what the world is now. He's just complaining about it, right? Whereas Ichikawa is more like, I think, um, just sort of, it's not necessarily complaining about it, but more like trying to sort of dig into it and sort of ex- and analyze it to a certain extent. Um, I don't know. It's just, um, I don't know. I, I'm really deeply fascinated by it. I really like this movie. Yeah. I, well, it's interesting to, to encounter one where, like, maybe I'm the... I'm the guy who's way, way more into yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, does the change to Yukiko's uh, husband from the book then make the ending, the last, the last frame of it, the last scene being uh, her brother-in-law drunkenly mourning her loss to to marrying this guy? Uh something of of some sort of historical metaphor that i'm not grasping uh because he is uh, it could he is i, I more was considering class, the same right? thing you know he he and he is he is from he is he is he is like a, a classic sort of upstart right? right he's got like he has married in his family because he is presumably pretty brilliant yeah. and like was i suspect all of the husbands were essentially well we know the last two but I suspect both of the husbands are 
what's the word I'm looking for? Are capitulations yeah. to the times. Like they're neither of them are who well, these families expected these I, daughters to marry. I think but they are who they get. I think even uh you know, depending on the timing and when I think I think we've sort of established that the parents die before even the oldest sister is married, maybe. Not necessarily. I, I got a little confused about the timeline. Yeah. I'm not clear on when they died. So it's possible. But I kind of got no, 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 that's oh. no no. I I think the oldest sister is married because I think their mother dies and she gets married in the interval between the death of her mother and the death of her okay. father. Because the reason I say that is the father the the um Sudoku's husband and um um, I keep forgetting everybody's fucking name if I don't like <laughs> directly look at their names. Uh, yeah, Tatsuo, like, he seems to make reference to, like, having met okay. her father and, uh, like, worked with him. I wonder the then business. if uh, Tatsuo is approved of as marriage as as a businessman who could maybe take over the business but doesn't I think want so. to do that. I think so, right? because, and then, well, no, what it seems <laughs> to have happened, because he does make reference to this fact, is that, like, oh, no, that business was fucking suck. <laughs> yeah. Okay, like uh, that was th- like he make he comments on it when, in a moment of anger, and I suspect that's probably something that carries over from the book. Yeah, um, if I had to take a guess, is it like they made bad business decisions? They didn't capitalize on like how things changed. Yeah, uh, presumably, if you if you factor in like changes in styles combined with like, well, we're all focused on the war effort now. Like they didn't read the tea leaves or whatever, and so. He right. makes references to being the one who shut the company down. Yeah. Um, if then such eh, Sachiko's uh, husband marries in after the father dies and after the company has been shut down, it might just be a marriage of uh, we need a guy who can run all our money for us. <laughs> so let's hire the. I think that's part of it. No, I accountant. think it is. I I, yeah. I I agree. I I do think that's a really key component of it. I really think that like. It is that, but also I think it's like everybody, I think, I think both of them are below. Yeah. I think both of them are meant to be below the status personal of the standings. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that they've taken the he's family's probably last even name. more of a capitulation. Yeah. Right. The, well, yeah, they're marrying into that is a traditional thing that does happen if you're marrying into a more powerful family. Right. And exactly. They are both, they are both essentially peasants. Yeah. Uh, are marrying into a. A slightly and again they're the the family the Magiogas are not an upper crust fam they're not a they are not an aristocratic family but they've probably been important long enough that they've picked up a lot of as we talk about talked about earlier a lot of the affectations of that that were common among merchants who had made had made it made yeah. it good and and had a lot yeah. of uh, wealth I don't know. It's just interesting because, like, and in that way, Yukiko is the only one who achieves the kind of marriage that her father would have approved of in right. the in the movie, not right. in the in the book. Right. Um. Although even in the book, he's probably still the best catch in terms of like what the family considers its position. Right. Because even a, a, even the bastard son of a nobleman is still like the son of a nobleman. In, in that line, and and yeah. and and assuming that, like for example, the oldest, the other son died, would just be integrated into the family, like instantly right. as a like, well, like the like, we're we're starting to get into really weird conceptions of like legitimacy, 
yeah. as it pertains to like pre and post major restoration because Japan adopted a lot of Western ideas about like that kind of stuff that weren't necessarily dominant in Japan prior to the major restoration about like the roles of bastards and stuff in society. Okay. Um, we don't need to spend a lot of time talking about that. <laughs> That's okay. Um, Good. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there was a lot of affectation towards like Western morality right. and like what was considered, like where like picking up a lot of Christian morality that had no real like basis in Japanese history that would like right. did a lot of weird, goofy things because it's like, oh, we're going to pick up this moral standing that like nobody knows why it ha- why it exists. Right. We've certainly going to make it a rule. We've certainly talked about that in the past. Right? So. Yeah. 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 It's I I find it deeply I find all that shit super interesting. So if you let me go on, I will yeah. waste the rest of the um the podcast on that. Taiko's story is interesting. I mean, in that she's the major source of conflict in the movie, period, right? Um Right. But uh I like that she's the the rebellious young sister who smokes and makes creepy dolls. It's very classic proto goth. Uh, well, they're not meant to be creepy dolls. They're not meant to be much. creepy dolls, but they are. So you find them creepy doesn't make them actually creepy. Yeah. Um, no, she's. I also find them creepy. Yeah. They're just not meant to right, be creepy. Right. They're That's meant all. to be a traditional art. Um, in perhaps the which actually, weirdly enough, is a merchant class activity. Right. Like, yeah, like the merchants themselves are a traditional those... art, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And and the thing about it is, is that like. To this day, I mean, they are basically have mostly all gone out of business. But like, the making and selling of um, of like traditional Japanese like dolls is like a big deal, right. and you could make a lot of money doing it. Um, even like post war, that was a big, big thing that you could make a lot of money doing. Yeah. Um. One thing that's very hard to gauge in this movie is how old the sisters are meant to be. Yeah. Uh. And since the attempted elopement of Teiko and the... Uh, I, well, I mean, she's supposed to be, I think, like 20. Yeah. She's old enough that they can't stop her anymore is an important function. Yeah, but the elopement like, takes place 10, they, 10 years prior to... Does I thought it was five. Like, they kept referencing five. Yeah, they do keep saying in the five movie. or six. Yeah, sorry. So, yeah, she's meant to be like 20 now and was 15 then and... He was like, oh no, then. she's nineteen. She's she's nineteen mm-hmm. in the movie, yeah. or in the movie they say nineteen, yeah, which is not an adult at that at that time. Like, and even now, right? Well, now it is, but like five years ago was not an adult. Right. They they could like just drag her back and say, "You're not an adult. Come back." Right. Whereas, like, part of the conception here is that, like, well, she's now that's sort of I think maybe a is an interesting point because like, unless she got. I, 1937 Japan like was a lot like a 1937 America like they could have still dragged her back if they wanted to probably yeah like you wouldn't be hard pressed to convince a police officer to just like hey bring my daughter back and also even though she's legally an adult she's still a woman eloping at 14 with a 20 year old was not as much of a scandal again again, I don't think she's 14 she's I think they say she was 19 when she eloped no I thought she was 19 I I thought you were saying she was 19 during the during uh, no in the, mo- the current in the movie the she's movie. older than 20 okay all right in the movie yeah. she's older than 20 i'm pretty sure in the movie at one point there's a reference to her being 19 years old when she okay. attempts to all right up. all right maybe i missed that anyway i was trying to figure out how exactly old she was i could be, be wrong 
But like they're very know. close. And I remember that because I was like, I wonder how old she was. And then I went and looked it up and like there's a reference to because her husband, her would be husband uh, was like only like a year older than her. Okay. I was like, oh, okay. They're like, they're being read as like silly teenagers. Right. Okay. Um, I interpreted him as a little bit older. So I must have just. I'm fine with. I don't know. I maybe I I don't know where I got that from, but I'm ninety yeah. percent sure I read it. I could be wrong. Right. I was diving into like possible. book synopsis to try and figure out, which was hard because also the book covers a much longer period of time. So like, it was right, right, right. It, it didn't it didn't give me the answers I was looking for. Certainly. So yeah, I don't case. know why I I maybe it was in the movie, but somehow or another I got it in my head that she was nineteen years old when she tried that, which means that like it's one of those like well I feel old enough to like manage my own life but like legally i'm not allowed to manage yeah. my own life right sort of deals yeah and has the which would make uh, her like 23 right now or 24 or something like yeah. that uh yeah, she's yeah. also in the taming of the shrew shakespearean situation of not being able to marry until her older sister marries right uh so she right. gets to uh whatever she does at this point is illegitimate and she's tired of waiting <laughs> so you know right uh, right right uh, as far as her family is concerned, at least, right? Uh, not that even she would have been able to marry for love, ultimately, even if things had worked out the way they should have worked out, as far as the family was concerned. Right, although she is, she would be, if we're going, like, purely traditional things, she would be the least important, but, right. like, yes, you are, you are, it is fair to say that, like, none of them, had their parents remained alive and things gone the way they, they, feel that they should have yes they would have all married essentially for like political reasons right in some capacity or another for clothing contracts reasons <laughs> well yeah so, some 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 sort of like external motivation to make like or even like you know just to make a good a kind of quote-unquote good match that is like suitable for the family that is like befitting their 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 perceived station in life yeah uh like for me like i i don't know i i i i was kind i wasn't necessarily expecting you to like not like the movie i don't i i was expecting to be oh well you know I don't know. I think I think something very clever is happening here. Yeah. I think something very like, very in its own way, sort of deeply subversive is yeah. happening here. I think you've, uh, as far as like Ichikawa is concerned, yeah. um, I don't think this is a person who can just let go of making anti-war films. Right. Basically, I think that uh, you have made a very persuasive argument, but my watching it without any context was. Right, right. Just fairly boring to me. Uh, and yeah, I, I guess I mean it's sort of the it's sort of whether or not you find these kinds of aristocratic dramas yeah. interesting or not. And you know we've had we've had what what would be termed women's films uh, prior within Japan. A lot of Ozu's work we've talked about. Um, it does. This does remind yeah. me of sort of a weird precursor to an Ozu film. Yeah. Like you could almost expect Ozu tends to be a little bit more. Uh, slightly lower down the middle right, class right. rung and in terms of like who it right. focuses on. That's the on. big change for me. I really just have no care about these people for for their money. Um, and there's right. not enough of an upstairs downstairs thing for me to engage with the working class elements in this film, right? The the um 
the maids don't get to interact as much. There's the very young one uh, who has the conversation with Teiko at one point. I, but Well, I mean, she is the one that is being like, for lack of a better term, her mistress is attempting to groom her into a proper lady. Yes. And and it was I find that entire dynamic interesting because we get just enough of them to make for Ishikawa to constantly be like, look, these people fucking suck, okay? Right. Because like bearing in mind that by the time we get to the nineteen eighties when this movie comes out, by and large the only people with domestic servants are the immensely wealthy. Domestic servitude is essentially a dead art like dead thing in Japan by the nineteen eighties, like completely. Actually, pretty much post-war, it's just gone. It doesn't. It does exist a little bit in like the fifties, but like the idea of a person having a maid is ridiculous to modern Japanese people in nineteen eighties. Yeah. Okay, like yeah, some people do, but they're all the immensely like insanely wealthy. Okay, are the sorts of people who have um domestic servants. Okay, so like then and and so you've you've kind of got a country that has adopted the sensibilities that we, we, you and I would understand too of like, Oh, you, you can be judged by the way you treat your, your, the help. Right. And like we as an audience can see these people being just fucking monstrous to their, to their domestics, uh, like helpers. Right. Like they are all, they constantly dismiss them, treat them like shit. And like, that's not an accident. You just kind of put that in there on purpose. Very much so. Like, they are shitheads to them. Even when they are trying to be nice, they are trying to be, when, even not, the Makiokas are never trying to be nice. Not really. Right. Uh, Sachiko is, is attempting to civilize hers, but, like, there's probably a bit of a reference to the idea of, like, Meiji Restoration, and, or not Meiji Restoration, like, post-war Japan civilizing the sort of savage, uh, um, like, mainland Asian people. Right. You know what I mean? Like, sort of, a, that is probably more of a comment on something like that, if you asked me. Um, but, like, just this idea that, like, they, the ser- the civil, or the, um, the um, domestic servants are constantly trying to engage with them as people. Mm-hmm. And the Machiagos do not see them as people right. and treat them like garbage for it. Right. Uh, even when they're trying to comfort them, be nice to them. Like, the best, the, the most human they treat them is like when the one dog like the one um that's been like a part of the family for a really long time, her brother dies. And like, well, I guess we should like send a card. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's only because it's the war, right? Like if it had not if he had not died in the war, if he had just died of like flu. Right. Well, he's trash people anyway. What do we care? Right, 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 right. Yeah. I I just I I I I kinda can't let go of that element. I think there's a probably a I think in a very subtle way, like Ichikawa is acknowledging and like, oh, like this is not a thing that Tanizaki was that interested in, probably. But this is a thing I am interested in is engaging with like the, the this this class and the way it treats the people around it, even though as it's slowly dissolving and falling apart anyway, right? Like, right. it's treating these people like shit when it's like immiserated itself to an intense degree that it's essentially nothing but a name at this point. Like, there's no... They don't have the business that made them famous and wealthy. That's gone. They're going to get rid of the house, essentially, that, made that, that like, was the result of that merchant empire. Like, right. it's all gone, but they're still obsessed with the idea that they, like, somehow stand above 
the people around them. They're essentially broke as far as we can tell, as far as the movie is concerned. Like, they don't have any money as far as we know, basically. Like, they, they bulk at, like, 2,000 yen. Like, now, mind you, I, I always have a really hard time dealing with, like, the yen pre- and post-war. Like, they're, right, like, right. Historically like contextualizing a lot how of much money. that is. Yeah. That is, it's a really, there's a big, big shift, okay? Because 2,000 yen is here now after all the inflation in the war and everything like that. Like, 2,000 yen now is, like, is 20 bucks. Yeah. But, like, um, but the point being that, like, still if they were the sort of powerful merchant family that they are, they wouldn't balk, that they conceive of themselves as, they wouldn't balk at that amount of money. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's still not a, we're a wealthy merchant family we can kind of level of money, right? Um, and so, but like, that's a hardship. That's like, a, oh shit, we have to pay a lot of money to make, to like maintain our like social position here. Right. Uh, I, I don't know. I find that very interesting. Like, because in, in your audience, the audience is also going to have the same problem. Like, they've seen more historical dramas than I have, but I suspect from talking to Japanese people I know, everybody has this problem, right? right? Because like, that, it's the same word. Yeah. But it's like wildly different amounts of money, right? Yeah, there's, um, but even then, go ahead. There's zero way to contextualize. I mean, even if we were talking about dollars, uh, in what what the buying power of a single yen right, was exactly. in 1938, surviving the war. Like even I just casually yeah, looked it, up. Yeah, it all gets rearranged too. Like. Yeah, I just casually looked up uh, yen inflation, historical inflation calculators, and like all of them start in 1955. Uh, like, because the yen changes meanings yeah. after the yeah. war. Like a yen, like there's a whole set of denominations under the yen mm-hmm. pre-war that don't exist post-war. The yen becomes the like the only denomination. Yeah, essentially. Does that make sense? There's like it's kind of like the British economy and how like I cannot understand pound sterling versus like you know what I mean. Like it sounds like that people just made some stuff up. Yeah, I mean which they did, but like <laughs> right. Um, you, but you you know what I mean? Like it, it is um it is weird enough that I have trouble dealing with it. But also, I think Ichikawa is fucking with our his audience a little bit and being like, because even if his audience can keep that in mind, they're still going to laugh at the idea of this guy freaking out about paying two thousand yen. Right. Like, because that's like that's like nineteen eighty three. They didn't pay that much for their movie ticket, but they certainly like spent more than two thousand yen on the date they're on to go to the movie. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, as at some total. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's all very, I'm, I'm really fascinated by like what he's doing in this movie. I, I, I really love him as a director and like, this is not exactly the thing I love him for. Like I do like, I mean, fires on the plane is literally one of the best movies I've ever seen in my entire life. It's not the one he's famous for, per se like everybody in japan knows him for burmese harp but like that's because that one's more positive than fire on the plane talk about like yeah he probably can't make any more fire on the plane because like people don't want to watch that movie very often you know what i mean like that movie is a singular vision of like of condemnation of everything that like the japanese army and the war stood for uh burmese harp is not much far behind but it has a slightly more positive message sort of as a sum total so it's probably slightly more palatable to people. Right. But yeah. Another change from the book that, that certainly has a major effect on what the movie is doing is that the book has internal monologues 
and the author, right? Right. The, the narrator, yeah. right? Right. It can have that. Yeah, it can have all that stuff. Yeah, and can have all that stuff. Whereas here, we are limited to looks to lingering shots uh, to whatnot. Right. And also, as we already talked about at the start, Toho's not giving this movie a huge budget, so uh, that limits what it can show, right? It limits... Uh, right, yeah. You know, we we talk a lot about the the beautiful nature and the, the cherry blossoms and et cetera, et cetera, and we see a little bit of it. I mean, but... yeah, we do... Right. Whereas in the the book itself is seemingly obsessed with that stuff. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, and we're we're inside a lot, which you know is its own interesting metaphor to this the state of this family and the state of the merchant class of of you know sort right. of. Well, and that's the thing, right? Bearing in mind that like the merchant class during World War Two is very successful. Like these right. guys are failures. In an environment where there's plenty of money to go around, if you're a part of the war effort, these guys have dropped the ball. Does that yeah. mean you know what I mean? Like they're 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 laughable failures in many ways, right? Because well, like they were kimono like other everybody shifted to like by 1936 when the movie theoretically starts or 1937, like everybody switched to wartime stuff, right? If you're not if you want to make money, you're working for the army, making stuff for the army, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they're yeah. just not. I'll say, you know, obviously none of the characters in this movie are like the characters from Grey Gardens, but in a similar way, they are trapped by their money and trapped by their yeah. their former station into being unable to ideologically escape what they are meant to be, particularly the right. oldest sister. Yes. Right. Uh yeah. So, you know, eventually the family home in Osaka, uh, assuming it stays in the family, uh, will be uh, half burned and invaded by raccoons. So, yeah, well, that, yes, well, I mean, legitimately speaking, that, that house has a fairly minuscule chance of survival. But, um, Oh, from yes. a purely like right. historical right. sense, but like there is that too. But also like <laughs> the the it, it is interesting because I mean they're giving it they're letting this person the caretaker of this house will eventually just become the owner of this right. house. Okay, like we we can like we the audience can read the writing on the wall, right? Like he's going to take care of it. He'll be the occupier of it, and when it all sort of shakes out, it's fairly likely that he'll just be the his family would just be the ones living in it like 30 years from now assuming they they as a whole survive the war like this family's probably never going to the makyokas are probably never going to reoccupy that house they probably can't afford it in many ways right and so like he can't either but like you know we don't know how the like next 10 years are going to shake out but you kind of get the impression like yeah, they're not selling the house, but they kind of might as well be. There's sort of this sort of I don't know. There's a sort of like it's sort of, it's subtle, but it, you get this sort of feeling of like, well, eventually after they've all been gone from it for quite some time, it'll just be quietly sold off because they can't actually afford to maintain it. Yeah, um, and I I think that's kind of an interesting thing to think about too, right? Is that like, oh well, they can't they can't actually afford it 
So they're going to have to eventually sell it off. Like they can't, you know, but they can't just like for purposes of saving face, they can't just like out and out sell it, but they can like um, kind of just keep kicking the can down the road until like nobody notices and then just sort of offload it. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. I, I think that's kind of interesting too. It's like, oh yeah, well we, They'll they'll just like somebody will eventually just you know like maybe that caretaker will like sort of nominally be in charge of it and just sort of like sell it off. Right. I think it's maybe sort of interesting that uh, it's never even suggested that Sachiko and her husband would move into the larger house. Right. No. Yeah. That that's interesting in of itself. Well. So that's I, that's why I think it's. A, I really do like a lot of what's going on here about that because I really think that's acknowledging. Well, they can't afford to maintain it. Right. Either. Right. Like nobody can. Like, we're we're there. So they're all just sort of like, well, they're not going to move in, and it's partially because they're not the top of the family. Is part of it, right? Obviously, that's a big part of it. But also, it's like, oh yeah, but like also we. Nobody can afford to live here. Is I think kind of interesting, right? The, the thing that is an interesting part of it, right? Yeah. And uh, given your your timing of this as 1938, the uh, well, it'd be probably like late seven, because he's going to be part of the her husband is right, going to be right. part of the formation of that airline, which forms in there, it's probably late 1937. Right. Yeah. yeah, it forms in 1938. So, um. We historically know that the city, the sisters parting ways at the end of this movie uh, are maybe never coming back together. Uh, mm. Probably very unlikely. Like, they might see each other. It's possible. Like, some of them will probably. But we're going to get into sort of a Ozu sort of thing, right? Where, like, I mean, one of the sisters is moving to Tokyo. Right. Her, like, lots of people survive the war, but a lot of people don't. Right. You know what I mean? Like, the... Firebombings and stuff were like very deadly affairs, and yeah, uh, you know we don't we as the audience kind of know that like she's walking to a certain extent sort of lion's den there as far as like what could or could not happen to her. Like again, she's the daughter or she's the wife of a of a an important banker, right? Presuming that they survive the war as a sort of as a physical act, they will be fine after the war, right? He will have a job after the war just as much as he did before the war and during the war, right? Uh, because none of those people get taken, none of those people get removed at all. Like, that's that's a totally untouched class as far as, like, the post-war is concerned. But, like, th- that doesn't protect them from firebombings and stuff. Right. Uh, you know, that and... and 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 there's a sort of notion of like, well, yeah, this is the end of this family, basically. Like, yeah, the the Makiokas will exist as a as a name that some of them have, but like they're pretty much like things are. They're none of their lives are really necessarily looking up. Um, yeah, and I think we as the audience are supposed to know that. Like, we're supposed to look at that and say, yeah, this is not going to go well. Um, and, and yeah, and I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think there's there's a certain sort of melancholy to it that's not meant to be the melancholy of, oh, look at these, like how the the aristocratic class is sort of, look, look at them. You know, it's not supposed to be the sort of nostalgia for like them as sort of like the peak of the pinnacle of um 
sort of Japanese society or something like that. As far as Ichikawa is concerned, it's supposed to be like, you know, a sort of general melancholy about like, well, it is sad to watch the sort of unfolding of the, the collapse of this family. Right. Just in general terms. Like, oh, well, you know, that, that is a sad thing to watch, to witness, right? Right, right. Um, yeah, no. I'm glad that you, uh, you liked this movie more than I did. I, I, I assumed that you well, would, yeah. because you have more of a cultural context for this movie than I do now, right? Um, yeah, and, I, and also I, I think, you know, I, I, I have a sort of my own personal, like, I, I like to learn about and read about this time period in almost any society. Right. I think it is a really fascinating one. Like, I specifically Japan, because it is, like, a thing that I, I, ha- I care about on maybe a deeper level than, than even other stuff. But I find learning about the, the, the like, the sort of the interwar years, but very specifically, like, the final years before the war, I find it very deeply interesting because it's like, oh, like, you can see all the sorts of, like, the ways that fascism and, and the, the rise of fascism are, like, playing a role in people's lives even though people are sort of still anomaly trying to just go about their their day-to-days right i find is very interesting and how each sort of class and stuff interacts with that uh, is really fascinating to me in general i mean when i read about that with like germany and stuff too i find you know like the the, the waning days of the weimar republic are really really interesting to read yeah, about i think that's fair because you have a bunch of people like essentially doing what they would normally like sort of doing trying to do the things they would normally do and then they it you know what with capitalism sort of inevitably leading to fascism it sort of all keeps falling that way you know it's i don't know it's just very interesting yeah uh but yes i do i do find this part this period of japanese history super i don't enjoy reading about the war at all i I don't find that interesting even a little bit uh but i do find this era of this era very interesting and people's lives in it interesting so yeah yeah well uh (laughs) it is also true that i find many of the family dramas we watch from around the world very interesting uh particularly japanese ones very interesting as well uh but sort of universally and this was true i think of summer hours for both of us uh, the more upper class that family is, the less interesting I find it. Oh yeah, I, and generally speaking, so, I completely yeah. agree with that. Is a that is a statement that I generally, as you know, yeah. generally agree with. I I specifically they, somebody has to be doing something very special yeah. and to, for me to be like, oh yeah, this is one of those upper class dramas that like I'm not necessarily being asked to care about them in an upper crust right, way. Right, 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 like, right. I don't know. It's hard to explain. Yeah. yeah. And also, again, I think Ichikawa is like trying to right. Like, and Ichikawa is a little bit a brilliant film director, as uh, as evident by everything else I've seen of him. So uh, you have made a solid argument for me to consider this to be a brilliant film in its own right. I just uh, independent of your yeah, argument doesn't mean you have to like. It doesn't mean that. you have to yeah. have enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah. Also, it is full. It is chock full of 
fucking super duper famous people. Yeah. Every one Absolutely. of those yeah. actors is fucking super famous. It's ridiculous. Like I was watching it and like Rumi was like, oh, that person's oh, I know that person. And then, like we go to like another scene like five minutes. Oh, I know that <laughs> like it was the for like about ten minutes. I was like, do you want to watch this movie? No. <laughs> I was like, all right, cool. Yeah. Uh, but uh, just sat there going like, yep, that person's super famous. That person's super famous. That person's super famous. Like, yeah, that's that's the impression I'm getting. This is chock full of very heavy hitters. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Again, famous book. Like, the book is famous, like, to the level where, like, even if Ichikawa is not um, maybe – the most beloved darling of the film industry at this time. Like people know this book and like want to be in a movie about this book. Right, 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 right. Also, Ichikawa is also famous. So right. like it's, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little bit right. reductive. No. Ichikawa maybe is not the most beloved person of Toho, but right. he is certainly didn't, of actor. Yeah. Actors are more, are not the same as the, the, the fucking, uh, the the you know the money people at the top they're right, right. a different group of people absolutely yeah might actually want to be in a would maybe want to be in each Kawa film just for the sake of being in each Kawa film yeah uh, <laughs> indeed oh well this week we have been talking about the Mahioka sisters uh, from nineteen eighty five directed by Kone Ichikawa. Um next week we're gonna be back in America. For a classic film noir, 1955's Kiss Me Deadly, uh, directed by Robert Aldrich. Uh, looking forward to that. We always love a good noir. So, uh, yeah, Kiss Me Deadly from 1955. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I'm, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Ovitari Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. Bye. This has been Lost in Criterion, hosted by me, Adam Glass. Find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. My co-host is John Patrick Obertari Dorgan. You can find him on Twitter at jpatrickdorgan. Big thanks to Jonathan Hape for our theme song. Check him out at jonathanhape.bandcamp.com or hear more from him on any streaming service. Also, thanks to all our Patreon supporters, iTunes reviewers, and Redbubble customers. And hey, thank you for listening.